Turn in the scriptures to Genesis chapter 39. We continue our study there. A couple weeks ago, we had returned to Genesis at chapter 37 to the Joseph cycle, as we might call it. Genesis 37 to the end of the book is in different ways taken up with God's work in the life of Joseph, really his work for the whole church. But in chapter 37, his brothers had sold him to the Ishmaelites who brought Joseph down to Egypt, where he was sold to Potiphar. Chapter 38 was a bit of a breaking away from that storyline to show us Judah, brother of Joseph, and his immorality, and yet the Lord's saving grace in the midst of it. And now we come to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39 at verse 1, God's holy word. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in his house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her, to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought in to us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to, mock, to me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. 
Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. God's wonderful and inerrant word. Let's bow before him and ask for his blessing. O Lord, our God, we pray then that you'd be with us, that you'd be with us in the hearing of your word, that you'd be with us in the believing of the things you speak, that you'd be with us in applying your word to our lives. We pray that you would minister by your spirit to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we'd see the glory of our mediator and that we would know his salvation. Oh, Father, give your help to us weak creatures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, people of God, we often leave Sunday night from our worship service under the proclamation, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord bless you and keep you. Do you ever pause during the week to to think about that? As you're going about your work at home or at school or in the workplace or in the field to, to think, what does that mean? The Lord bless me and keep me. Or do you ever think to yourself, does it, does it make any difference? Is God really with me? Is it, does it account for anything that goes on in my life that, that the Lord is with me? Today we hear the news, the good news, that God with us, Emmanuel, makes all the difference in the world. The writer of this chapter, ultimately God the Holy Spirit, goes to great pains here to point it out to us so we can't miss it. Though the only one to use God's name in the chapter is Joseph. He he says God one time. The narrator who's telling the story to us uses the covenant name of the Lord eight times. For those who don't remember, in the English Bible, when you read all capitals, L-O-R-D, in all capitals, it's the English Bible's way of translating what God gave to his people in the Old Testament in covenant with them, his name, Yahweh, or Jehovah. And the writer here in chapter 39 uses that name eight times, which is remarkable since after this chapter it's used but one time in the rest of the book. And not only does the writer use the name Lord Jehovah eight times, he says four times over, twice at the beginning of the chapter and twice at the end of the chapter, the Lord was with Joseph or the Lord was with him. And so it's as if the writer, as if God the Holy Spirit is saying, I'm going to say this one time very, very loudly. And then you are to interpret the rest of the book in this way. The Lord, the covenant God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God was with his servant in adversity. And that accounts for everything. Absolutely everything. 
Now, the theme of God's presence with his people is not new. It reaches back to the Abrahamic covenant when God said to Abraham, I'll be God to you and to your descendants after you. And God said to, to Father Jacob, as he was about to leave the land and had to flee from brother Esau, God said to Jacob at Bethel, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And now as you come to the end of this book of Genesis, Joseph is sort of an embodiment, an initial fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Remember how the book has gone? began with creation. God made us for himself. He walked with us. He was with us. Then the fall into sin. We broke covenant with God. We sinned against him and no longer deserve God's presence. And then the gospel promises begin to be worked out. And now Joseph comes at the end of this book. In fact, as you read Genesis, you have to ask yourself, why such a long stretch devoted to God's work in Joseph? Well, I think it's because Joseph is the resolution of the book of Genesis. He is the embodiment now of these promises being fulfilled. God is with us again. God is with his servant. And this story, Genesis 39, was not written for Joseph, right? He's long dead by the time Moses is writing these words. But these words are, first of all, for the Israelites who had just come out of slavery in Egypt. These words are for the church today that we may know it. The Holy Spirit wants us to hear that the Lord is with his servants in adversity so that they can fulfill their calling. And that's the theme we consider this morning. The Lord with his servants in adversity so that they may fulfill their calling. He's with his servant Joseph in the adversity of slavery. And then he's with Joseph in the adversity of temptation. And then he's with Joseph in the adversity of imprisonment. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So the scene is the ugly scene of Joseph having been sold into slavery by his brothers. Remember they had so hated him. They were so envious of him. Father's favorite. They were envious of Joseph because he had those dreams. His sheaf of grain rising up and there his brother's sheaves bowing down. These dreams that portended a a future, a prophesied a day when Joseph would be ruler. And so they hated him and they said, "We'll, we'll deal with him and see what becomes of his dreams. They threw him into a pit, thought about killing him, but then sold him to the Ishmaelites. And Joseph's been carried down to Egypt and purchased by Potiphar. Potiphar. So here's Joseph in Egypt under the rule, enslavement of an Egyptian man. And he's far from the promised land of Canaan, and he's far from his family, and therefore he's far from the church. He's far from the community to which God had made promises. And you can only begin to imagine, I think, the, the grief, and the confusion, the sorrow in Joseph's mind. What does this mean? My brothers hate me that much to sell me off. I'm in bondage, no hope of ever returning home. I thought God was doing great things through Father Abraham and Isaac and my father Jacob. And the dreams suggest through my life. And now here I am. Everything has failed. Joseph has come to what one commentator calls the most uncertain moment in his life. The most uncertain moment in his life. Joseph, his future, seems to have evaporated. He's weak and he's oppressed and he's vulnerable and he's all alone. Or is he? Or is he, the writer says. No, his brothers have separated him from Father Jacob, but they have not separated him from Jehovah. And so the Holy Spirit tells us the Lord, Jehovah, was with him. 
It's amazing. All human supports have failed Joseph. All familiar surroundings are gone. He faces the trial of his life. He might think, the Lord is against me. The Lord has forgotten me. The Lord is nowhere to be found. And the writer says over and over, the Lord was with him. It's the one thing that makes all the difference in the life of Joseph. It's the one thing that makes all the difference in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Father says, this is my beloved Son. It's the one thing that makes all the difference in your life. And it's this amazing reality that wherever God's servants go, the Lord goes with them. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God has an inscrutable plan, doesn't he? for the lives of his servants and how he will use them. To Joseph, it may have seemed that God had totally abandoned his plan, the plan of those dreams. But Joseph will find out this is exactly the plan. God's incomprehensible purposes. I heard one preacher say that, that we tend to look at God's work as if looking at a painter who had just begun a painting and put on a few brush strokes, and we begin criticizing it. And if we did that, anybody would say, what are you doing? You, how can you criticize you? He's just begun. How can you know what it'll look like? But sometimes in our own lives, we react that way. Things don't go the way we thought, and we think, oh, it's all lost. But the Lord has a profound plan that he's bringing to fruition. When his brothers thought, we will ruin all chances of Joseph rising, God said, I'm going to bring Joseph down to Egypt precisely in order to lift him up. So in God's plan, Joseph is not purchased by some farmer down in southern Egypt to be worked to death as a farmhand. Joseph is purchased by Potiphar, a captain of the guard. He's the head of the secret service or the or the security team for the Pharaoh, it seems. And because the Lord is with Joseph, he's prosperous. He is successful in the work that he's given to do as a slave. In fact, it prospers in enormous ways, in the field and in the house. We don't know if there were bumper crops and ladies having lots of babies or relationships going great or investments abounding, but things are spectacular. And it's not owing to Joseph's wisdoms or skill or hard work, though God may have used all the gifts he had given to Joseph. It was because the Lord gave him the gifts and God prospered them. In fact, so much so, is this the work of the Lord that even a heathen notices, verse 3, Joseph's master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. What a remarkable thing. Many in those days believed that that gods were local deities and they were confined to geographic regions. And here's Joseph has come far from home, but, but it's clear that Joseph's God is not isolated in the land of Canaan. Joseph's God marches with his servants and is with them wherever they are. And because Potiphar recognizes that the Lord is with him, blessing him, he elevates Joseph. And pretty soon Joseph's in charge of everything. He's the chief manager of all that he has. And Potiphar is able to trace it to the source that the Lord is with him. 
John Calvin makes an interesting comment in his commentary that if, if the heathen Potiphar could see it and, and give credit to the Lord, that the Lord was with him, we are the most ungrateful. If we are not tracing our success to the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. If, if we look upon our lives and we, we look at the ways in which we're enjoying God's blessing and we're not tracing it to the Lord, and then we're acting in ways that are more blind than a pagan Egyptian. What evidence for Joseph and for any who had eyes to see that the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled? In fact, do you remember when God called Abraham away from his home to go to the land? He would show him God made that special promise to Abraham, saying, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Can you imagine that? You're called to leave your home and to go off on your own to wherever God's going to show you. And this covenant Lord says to you, through you, through your family, the whole earth is going to be blessed. And now what do we see? But the Lord blessing, verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Blessings are beginning to flow to the world. Right now, physically, and later, spiritually, through the line of Abraham. It's a calling that will be fulfilled, wouldn't it, in Jesus Christ, who will become the blessing of the nations. And who is the blessing to us? Gentiles, right? Remember what Galatians chapter 3 says, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Joseph typifies, he foreshadows the coming of God's ultimate servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring the blessing to the world. And isn't it a marvelous thing to see that though Joseph is not the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of Christ in Joseph, Joseph, even in this place of great adversity, becomes a blessing to the household of Potiphar. What a comfort for us as we seek to appropriate these words and this truth that the Lord is with his people in adversity. Because maybe you go to work this week and you're thinking to yourself, I could really be a blessing here if I just get a different manager. I could be really be a blessing here if this, if this hardship was removed. And the text is saying to us that it's precisely in the adversity that the Lord's with his people to cause them to fulfill their calling. God's people are able to bear up under mistreatment, to put away complaining, to put on gentleness, to be faithful, to be diligent, and to cause others to see that the Lord is with us. Peter says, people might ask you a reason for your hope, detecting a difference about you, so you can tell them the Lord is my God. Joseph dragged down to Egypt, and it would seem that he's all alone, but he's not. The Lord stands beside his people. Paul would later say that all had deserted me at my first trial, but the Lord stood by me. And and that's the thing we're all called to sing. In Psalm 27, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. This is to be the cry of God's children down through the ages, wherever they find themselves. I am not alone. The Lord is with me. 
And this comes to greater poignancy in the New Testament when we have revealed to us our Emmanuel, the Son of God in our human nature. God is with us. And if in the Old Testament God pitched his tent among the tents of the Israelites and he camped among their camp and he said, I am with you, then surely it doesn't mean anything less when Jesus Christ says, as he sends out his church in the Great Commission, saying, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Christ would be sold out as Joseph was sold out. Joseph sold into slavery and Judas selling Jesus into the hands of the enemies, but because Christ was willing. And because Christ was willing to go to the cross and be left alone, cut off, and to hear that God is not with you, God is against you. This is the covenant curse. Since he bore that for us, being forsaken, we will never be forsaken. And that's our great hope. But the Lord is with us in adversity. He's with Joseph in slavery. Notice, secondly, that he's with Joseph in temptation. With Joseph in temptation. The story takes a turn in the middle of verse 6 when we read that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Something similar was said of his mother, Rachel. She was beautiful and that he has inherited her qualities and he's a good-looking guy which makes it a dangerous situation for him. Because Satan is at work, and Satan is looking for something to use to destroy the church and the line of our Lord Jesus and the coming of our Savior in the world. And the instrument here is Mrs. Potiphar. She's not even given a name in the text. She doesn't deserve one. She is a wicked, wicked woman who would destroy him. But she sets her longing eyes on Joseph, She entices him, and then she commands him, lie with me. Joseph refuses, and he refuses. You have to understand this must have been a tremendous temptation. Number one, Joseph was a young man, probably has strong sexual desires. Number two, he may feel lonely and desires some companionship. Number three... He may have felt it's useless to maintain his purity when he is far from the church, living in a pagan land among pagan people where this kind of thing went on. Number four, she may have been attractive, or at least she had the means to make herself look as good as she could. Number five, he may have well been intimidated by her because she really held his life in her hands. Number six, he had some good excuses, right? He's a slave, she's commanding, or maybe even to blasphemously argue that, that God put me in the spot, or even worse, that, that this is God's provision for me in my loneliness. And number seven, she keeps on with this day after day, the text tells us. You know, it's something to resist the temptation once or twice or three times. Day after day after day, trying to wear him down. But Joseph has refused. There's no hesitation. There's no consideration. He has it settled in his mind. Verse 8. He gives his reason. Number one, 
I've been entrusted with all this from my master. I can't betray his trust. Number two, the only thing he's kept back is you because you are his wife. And number three, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I stand before the face of my God. There's no greater power to overcome temptation than the fear of God, right? But the fatal day comes, Mrs. Potiphar, when no one's around, finally takes it to the extreme and grabs him by his clothes and holds on to him. And what can Joseph do? He leaves his clothes behind and flees for his life. That's what's called a strategic retreat. It's the language that's been used, and it's well said, right? Not every running is the running of cowardice. There is the running of wisdom, and there is the running of bravery, and this was a good thing. Someone has said that those who walk around saying, oh, I can handle it, who don't run from sexual temptation but say, I can handle it, are often those who are later saying, I don't know what came over me. I can't believe I did this. Run, flee from sexual temptation is, is the command of Scripture, and it's illustrated here in the life of Joseph. But the point of the story is not that Joseph is our hero. That's not the point. The point is that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. She thinks that Joseph can be forced. Joseph can be bought. Joseph has this price. What she doesn't know is that in the heart of Joseph is a man who would rather die than betray his God. It was the Lord who caused Joseph to see clearly and to stand firmly and to run without hesitation. The Lord was with him. Now, the text doesn't say in this middle part that the Lord was with him. You read through this whole temptation scene, and, and there's nothing here about the Lord being with him. And it often feels that way in the midst of our temptations, that we can't see God, and we feel like we're alone. Oh, but the fruit reveals the Lord is with him. Joseph stood. There's a greater temptation overcome in the New Testament when our Lord Jesus Christ sent out into the wilderness to be tempted and to be tried, and Jesus resisted. Jesus stood firm. More temptation would come as Jesus is slandered and lied about like Joseph would be here shortly. But in Christ's great victory, there is secured for us the power and strength of God to be with us in temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 says two vitally important things. Number one, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Be careful. Number two, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Aren't those precious words to the believer to know that, that in every temptation there will always be a way out? There will always be a way where I don't have to sin. Satan frequently comes into our minds saying, there's no other way, just go ahead and sin. You're going to sin now or later, you might as well get it over with. It's the only way out. And the word of God says, it ain't so. In every temptation, God will provide the way of escape. 
Some of you know the name of Charles Spurgeon, a famous English preacher. I was reading in his autobiography where he, as an older man now looking back over his life, makes the comment that when I desired to sin, I had no opportunity. And when I had opportunity to sin, I had no desire. He's not saying that he never sinned, of course, but he's, he's looking back over his life and saying, isn't this interesting? And in those moments when I was, whatever he's thinking about, a lustful young man, I lacked opportunity. And in those times when I had abundant opportunity, by God's grace, I had no desire. God kept these two apart. Isn't that often the case in our lives? Can't we look back over our lives and think, oh boy, that could have been a disaster. How gracious God was. And even where the Lord grants the temptation and allows us to go through it, we may know I am not on my own. Christ has gone through the temptation before me. Christ has opened up a way. Christ has purchased for me the blessing of Abraham, the Holy Spirit, so I can stand. And standing when it comes to sexual sin often means running, running. It's interesting as well as you think about this whole situation here. Because what is God doing by sending Joseph down to Egypt? Well, you say he's, he's, he's preparing a breadbasket, right? He's securing food because there's going to be a famine. So the family of Jacob won't starve to death. But it's more than that. God is going to relocate his people down to Egypt. And why is that necessary? Well, chapter 38 shows us why. Because Judah and the others were being tempted to assimilate with the Canaanites. Judah had visited a harlot. Judah had gone the way of the world. The church was threatened with corruption of the world and giving in. And God's plan is to relocate the church down to Egypt and put her in isolation there, away from the Egyptians to live in the land of Goshen for 400 years until Canaan is ripe for judgment. And then he'll send his people in there to wipe out the Canaanites and give them a cleansed land. But God is saving his people from temptation through Joseph. God has various ways of doing this, doesn't he? He works in different ways. But what we must come to grips with this morning, what must be settled in our mind, is the reality that I am never alone in temptation. And I never have to cave to it because the Lord is with me. Christ has conquered through his overcoming temptation. And he has purchased for me the way out and the way to stand. That humbles our hearts then, doesn't it? Because when we look at where we've fallen into sin, we can't blame God or blame others. We have to confess our sin before God. Lord, I, I did not trust you. Or Lord, I did not take the way out you provided. Lord, I, I caved in. But as we confess our sin and enjoy that glorious forgiveness of God, going forward we may know, I don't have to fall again. There's a way with the Lord. There's a power in the Lord. There's a path. Against all human odds, so to speak, Joseph here, a young man, living in his master's house, the master's wife throwing herself at him, and Joseph stands firm. No brothers and sisters support him. No weekly worship services to be strengthened by. And yet, by the grace of God, he stands. 
the Lord was with him. And we are to take note of this. The glorious power of God through Jesus Christ, we, brothers and sisters, by God's grace, can stand. But finally, the Lord is with Joseph in the adversity of prison. Let's notice that thirdly. As we see that standing for righteousness doesn't mean that you suddenly get great things. Joseph was doing quite well, humanly speaking, wasn't he? He'd been made the, the chief ruler in the house of Potiphar, and now by standing for righteousness, he gets what? He gets slander and false accusation. He gets thrown in prison. Down he goes. Just when he thought, maybe I'm beginning to see the plan of the Lord. Oh, I can see how this is going to work. Then he crashes, as it were. Scholars tell us that the normal penalty for the crime Joseph is accused of would have been death, especially for a slave. The fact that he's thrown into prison may suggest that Potiphar didn't wholly believe his wife, but that's beyond the text. In any case, in God's providence, Joseph doesn't get the death penalty. He gets prison, prison. Not just any prison, but the king's special prison for his political enemies. And what happens there? Does Joseph sink, sink, sink into deep despondency? Does he, does he fall into depression now and say, well, I'm not going to try anymore? No, the Lord is with him. And Joseph applies himself with great industry. And soon he's recognized by the keeper of the prison, and Joseph is elevated in the prison to a place of recognition. His talent does not go unnoticed. The Lord is again at work. In verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. It's not even that Joseph deserved this mercy, is it? It's not even that Joseph deserved special treatment in the prison because of his stand. No, it was mercy. It was all the covenant love and, and tender grace of God towards Joseph that brought him the Lord's prosperity there. Suffering cost him greatly. Righteousness cost him Think of our Lord Jesus Christ again, don't we? And how he and all of his obedience suffered for it. But the Lord was with him. Think about our Lord Jesus Christ, his stand for righteousness, his refusal to be corrupted, to turn away from the path God had ordained for him, brought against him what? The accusations of the wicked. All of their slander, all of their lies that brought him to the cross. And yet... What does Isaiah say? That through all of that was a glorious, glorious happening, prophesied so long ago, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Because God is with his servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's death on the cross is not empty and worthless, but the will of God, the pleasure of God, prospers in the hand of Jesus. God is with him and raised him from the dead, and he saves his people. His gospel goes to the ends of the earth. 
so that we may be certain this morning that through Christ Jesus, God is with us. Joseph, yes, he typifies Jesus in many ways. Joseph was sold out. Jesus was sold out. Joseph stood firmly by God's grace. Christ stood firmly. Joseph was falsely accused. Jesus was falsely accused. Joseph will become a blessing to the church and to the world. But Christ, more so, will bring salvation. And in that salvation, this glorious news that God is with his people. What does that look like? Let's think about that in concluding this morning. What does it look like for God to be with his people? According to the health and wealth preachers, it looks like health and wealth. Right? That's how you know God is blessing you. And if you're a preacher, you know God is blessing you if the church is huge. Which would lead then poor Apostle Paul to know that God is not with him. Because Apostle Paul was with small numbers and he was beaten and he was imprisoned and he was shipwrecked and he was hungry. And he had sleepless nights. But no, those outward signs are not necessarily the signs that God is with us. They may be signs of God's blessing. We count many material blessings from the hand of our Father. But those things alone are not the evidence. The evidence is that God gives to us in Christ a new heart. We say with Joseph, how can I do this sin against God? That we, that we say, my chief delight is to serve my Lord and my Master. I belong to him. And it's that we believe, that we believe the sure word of God. That's how we know God is with us, because he said, Romans 8, This is the Apostle Paul who wrote this by the Spirit, right? The one who apparently was not outwardly blessed of God, but who's able to say, despite all his imprisonments and hunger and sleepless nights and shipwrecks and beatings, who says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus Christ, we have this assurance, brothers and sisters, this glad assurance that the circumstances of our lives are not determinative, but the presence of God is. The circumstances of our lives are not determinative, but the presence of God determines everything. You can be sold out by your brothers, made a slave in Egypt, slandered by an aristocratic woman, thrown into a prison to be left for dead. But if the Lord is with you, then God's purpose for you and in you will come to fruition. Is there anywhere in your life this morning where you have separated the presence of God from your current circumstance in your mind? 
that you have conceived of your current crisis or frustration or fear outside the scope of the presence of God in Christ Jesus. God is shouting it to us in Genesis 39. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. Not for Joseph's sake, but for ours. So that we, in knowing God through Christ Jesus, might believe it. That God, Emmanuel, is with us. Wherever I am, whatever the trials and hardships of my life, whatever the uncertainties, wherever the picture doesn't look like it's being painted very well, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping Lord is with his people. He will not leave them. He will not forsake them. Don't let Satan take away from you the sure confidence that Christ loves to impart to you. But take God at his word. Know that what God was for Joseph, now that Christ has come, he is not less of it, but all the more. And so be glad. And be confident. And confess that though you can't see the future, and you don't know where this masterpiece ends in the present moment, you know the ultimate goal. You will shine with Jesus in glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this bold story, this piece of history that you have recorded, not as the Egyptians might have written it, but as the true interpreter of all things has written it. So we may know the true secret of Joseph's life, that he was living under the blessing, the gracious, merciful blessing of the covenant Lord. Well, Father, we pray that you administer your truth to us, that you give us the grace to take it to heart, and that we believe what seems so simple, but what is so remarkably profound, that the creator of the heavens and the earth, the almighty and just God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is through Christ really with us. May that comfort our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.